Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys today. So sit back and enjoy. We've got a few topics to discuss today. We have a ton of Cognitive Elite questions today, so hopefully I'll be brief on the normal subjects because we got to get to the Cognitive Elite questions, of course. But the first thing I want to talk about is, and some people got heated about this, but literally anyone gets heated about anything I say. Uh, We have a new Greerhead pledge, which we'll go into later on in the podcast, and people were uh, really upset about it, even though, you know, there's all these people who never talked about it before and never, you know, complimented me on, like, saying, don't watch the NFL. And then all these people suddenly came out of the woodwork to, like, barrage my mentions about like the nfl and stuff it's like i haven't seen you before uh supporting this pledge so now you're coming out to uh complain about it but generally people are online just a bitch and complain and i feel that that's a that's a necessary that's a intrinsic part of the internet so it's something i come to accept but on the first thing topic i want to discuss it's not the greer head pledge it is the End of the hyper-political era in America, which some people were, you know, strongly debating that. They were saying, like, oh, that can't be true. Like, we have people out in the streets protesting illegals in New York City or various parts of New York. That's true. Uh, But we've always had protests of a sort, uh, right-wing protests, even conservative protests. Of course, a lot of left-wing protests. But the amount of protests we're seeing are generally smaller than what was happening in 2017, 2018. And just the level of engagement from the national public seems to have diminished from that time. And it's not all bad. It's just more of an acceptance of where it is. And I got this from, believe it or not, a Compact Magazine article, which I've always been very critical of Compact Magazine and found a lot of their articles stupid. Most of the time, they're just arguing for uh, you know this post-liberalism that's Essentially, just social democracy or, you know, mid 20th century social democracy plus abort, you know, pro-life views. Uh, And generally, it's not very smart. But they did have a smart article from a random writer saying how we are moving past that hyper-political age. And he pointed out, the writer pointed out how, you know, news subscriptions are down. That's true. I mean, even publications like Washington Post that were doing incredible during the Trump era are now having to do layoffs and there's been mass media layoffs major media institutions cnn buzzfeed a lot of these media institutions have shut down and that's all just happened in a few years so the fact that news consumption is down is a good uh, sign of this and it's even showing that the amount of americans who pay attention to news is uh, far less than what it was in like 2018 and there's just a level of engagement that you're just not seeing. I mean, the one thing the writer didn't comprehend is that, or didn't note, is that the midterms had remarkably high turnout for midterms. And that does indicate there's some level, there's still a high degree of political engagement, probably more so than it was in, I don't know, maybe... Uh, you know, the 90s would be a level, would it be an age where we would say is not hyper politicized. So we would say the 90s is like the depoliticized era. You know, people were getting upset about Bill Clinton and, and things like that. But compared to what it was in the 2010s, you know, it was a much uh, less political age. Or you did not feel po- politics in all forms of media and all forms of culture, which you did during the Trump era. 
So the high turnout in the midterms is something to keep in mind. But I do think that this is not so much of a something that happened post-Trump. I think this is more something that's happened post-COVID lockdowns. And even if you go back to 2022, you know, the Ukraine stuff was unreal. The amount of Ukraine boosting just out in about when you're going around your daily business. I mean, you'd see random people in your neighborhood like flying Ukraine flags, Ukraine flags over overpasses, you know, all these like pop stars and, you know, the NFL draft featured tributes to Ukraine. I think even the NFL draft this year had a tribute to Ukraine. I know they did in 2022, but there's even actually uh, in one of the latest games, I think the Jets were wearing uh, Ukraine decal on their helmets. So it's, you know, this is pretty remarkable. I mean, you know, I was old enough to remember uh, the Yugoslav wars of the 90s. And I don't remember anyone having Kosovar flags on NFL helmets or anything of that sort. But we are seeing this with Ukraine. And that's a level of political engagement or a level of engagement with the news that wasn't seen, um, you know, you haven't seen in a long time. And it's uh, so that would have been the case, but all this stuff, even with the Ukraine stuff, it's definitely diminished in how intense it is among the public. You know, because even the Jets helmets, I think the main problem with that is our people's reaction is like, why are we still having those flag decals? Because you're not seeing Ukraine flags everywhere now. You know, you could have gone, people have these pictures from like, Texas auto dealers that generally are very conservative, have giant American flags, and they would be flying a giant Ukraine flag underneath the American flag. Tons of photos like that. You would not see that now, a year and a half later after the war, more than a year, actually roughly a year and a half later after the war started. You wouldn't see that now. But at that time in 2022, you did see. I think that the D, you know, you could have still argued Definitely still could have argued in 2021 that there was still hyper-political age. I mean, you had these really fierce school board protests throughout the country, either over mass mandates or critical race theory. You still have a little bit of that. You know, you're still seeing parents go up to school boards and, you know, read out all this crap that they're trying to teach their kids. There's still a level of that. There's always been that level of that, but the, the intensity doesn't seem as high as it was in 2021 you had the fights over lockdowns you had a lot of protests over that and then that built up into 2022 where there's still protests over the lockdowns and then you had ukraine and then you had roe v the overturning of roe v wade and you had a significant level of protests after that but then after the midterms you really see it really seemed to just the American nation just seemed to have just said, okay, we've had enough of politics. We're going to go back to our normal activities. Now, that's, of course, not everyone, but that's a large percentage of public, I think, that was hyper-engaged just a few years earlier when Trump was president, and they've now decided that, well, you know, I'm going to focus on other things. I'm going to focus on football. I'm going to watch TikToks and all that. And I think a big reason that maybe there's not as much engagement is that I think Zoomers are not as engaged with the day-to-day political news or political events as maybe millennials were in the 2010s. You know, millennials were very hyper-engaged about the Trump or, uh, the Trump era. Most of those protests were millennial-driven. Um, I, I know this is a mark against my generation, but 
It is very much all the kind of protests and and hysteria and hysterical rhetoric was coming from millennials who were starting to engage in politics. And that was also the people who were getting into Black Lives Matter and some of the climate change stuff at that time. You know, it was more of a millennial thing. The Zoomers believe a lot of this stuff. You know, they believe a lot of the woke stuff, especially the young women among them. Uh, you know, they can, they've shown tons of studies about showing how young women, uh, Zoomer women are very left wing and the young men are still relatively right wing, comparatively speaking to their uh, female cohorts. But I don't think that they're as wanting to be involved in politics. They're just simply, we'll say Black Lives Matter on their TikTok or say Trans Lives Matter or something of that sort. And they, but they are not going to go with that full-on engagement because I think there's just so many entertainment options for Zoomers that they really don't, they don't feel the need to pay attention to it. Now, the entertainment options that they're consuming are much more political or woke, woker than the entertainment options of millennial teenagers in the 2000s, you know. I don't think uh, emo and metalcore were very political, <laughs> or at least, you know, uh, not as political as the stuff that they're enjoying now, or Zoomers enjoying. But you know, it's not to the, I'm going to go out and protest. I'm going to go out and sign a petition to, you know, overthrow Trump or something. It's more of just, this is going to be, you know, a random message I have in my TikTok. But most, they're mainly focusing on video games, TikTok, and uh, growing up their Zoomer perms. So I don't think that they're as engaged as millennials were, as like the people in their 20s were in the 2010s as the people are in their 20s now engaged. And I think that is part of the reason that the maybe the era of hyper politics is over. Most of the people who seem to be really engaged in stuff, at least on the right, are Gen Xers. I was even having a point, uh, showing a point of this because uh, I was at the gym last night and I was watching, they had CNN on, and they had this hilarious documentary on all these, on this um, QAnon group that's, uh, that believes that JFK Jr. is still alive and he's going to return at any time. And this is a big thing on QAnon, which also delves into the mainstream rights fascination with JFK, that JFK was about to be the next, you know, the next great leader. And then the deep state or some other actor took him out, which is just not true. He was a very weak president who was a total libtard. But for whatever reason, the uh, right has decided he was the greatest president of the 20th century. I don't know why, but it's just there. But then that delves into these theories of the QAnoners who think that uh, JFK Jr. is alive and he's going to be Trump's vice president uh, <laughs> in 2024. And they're just showing this stuff. And they're all not quite strange. They, they're a bit strange, but they just look like your standard you know, Gen X middle-aged people that were there. They're in their 40s and 50s. You know, there was no, absolutely no young people among the crowd. They're all in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it was that very middle-aged crowd. And that's really where a lot of the right-wing radicalism in real life are in kind of motivated or this type of QAnon stuff. It's very much more among the middle age than it is the young. I mean, on Twitter, you see a lot of the young people who are there and you have various other groups that are very Zoomer-ish. Um, I mean, Groypers are very Zoomer, obviously. Um, but even a lot of the t stuff on Twitter, you see, or X as it's now called, you see a lot of the conversation discourse shaped by these Gen Xers more than it was shaped in the 2010s by millennials. You know, the alt-right was a very millennial phenomenon. 
but now you would have to say is that you know the rural lights, uh, the various people calling for national divorce, all the people who are DeSantis supporters, and even a lot of the Trump supporters on Twitter are you know middle aged now, are in their forties. While before, you know, the people who would have been posting memeing and stuff would have all been in their twenties. It's now gone up to an age or uh, to the age demographic of forties, which, you know, it's limited in the amount of radicalism that that demographic is capable of. Because one, they're you know a bit older; they're not uh, don't have as much energy as people in their twenties, and two, they have a lot more responsibilities than people in their twenties. So it becomes more of a a side hobby than a you know full on revolutionary commitment. None of this is to say that people are not going to care about these issues or all these issues are solved, as I'll go into a moment, is that this stuff, the political radicalization is here to stay. I just don't think it's going to be the level that it was, at least for this decade or maybe the next few years. I mean, this could all very well change next year with, you know, what happens with Trump getting convicted and what happens with the election. Maybe Trump wins. You know, I think (laughs) you'd see some type of return to that. But it's, you know, compared to this to 2018, you know, I was working in the news and the height of Trump hysteria. And I just remember that the media would just think anything like Trump would just, you know, pick something off his shoe and they would say that this is fascism. And they'd have like a 10,000 person protest over everything. And they'd all have like it was all alarm bells all the time. You know, there was just a level of hysteria that you could not comprehend in the, in cable news. Like, you know, you turn it on and CNN would act like this may be my final broadcast. And you had a lot of people who were like that. There was this one liberal commentator. I can't remember his name who kept would keep posting. It's like day 100 of me without being arrested. I'll keep posting this to let people know I'm OK. And tons of liberals believe this. They did legitimately believe that Trump was going to activate the MAGA hats to go up and round up liberals and put them in prison camps. Of course, there was no that was nowhere close to happening. And even the level of just Charlottesville is just the amount of attention for this rally that was only like a thousand people. You know, we've had this many times before, and this becomes the biggest news story of 2017. One of the biggest news stories of the Trump era. You know, it's the reason why Joe Biden ran for president. He said this in his, you know, his announcement in 2019 when he was running for uh, president. He's saying Charlottesville inspired me, which is just such a ridiculous notion. I mean, we've had these type of uh, rallies all the time throughout American history. And for some reason, this was it. But it was that level of tension. You know, the liberals were desperate to believe that Nazis were about to take over and that they had to worry about their safety and they didn't you know if their children are going to be murdered. You know, all these people, you know, especially if, among immigrant groups are like, Should I, I don't feel safe in America anymore. And that type of discourse, you know, even you were seeing that build up to 2022 like this could be america's final election this could be it you know if republicans win this could be the end of democracy and there was a lot more eye rolling at that than in trump era because a lot of the never trumpers agreed with democrats that trump is a fascist who's going to end democracy and that wasn't true at all 
And but that was just the level of discourse. It was that was a level of discussion topics. That was how people really perceived the times. And you see the ridiculousness now, and it's nowhere near that. And I think that build up to 2022 and them saying this could be the end of democracy, and then you know disappointing results for Republicans, and they've calmed down. I mean, even now when it comes to Trump indictments, which just is a serious thing. And compare that to just like Trump meeting Putin in 2018 or Trump's like very fine people comments or Trump like tweeting about South Africa or Trump criticizing journalists. That was the funniest thing is like Trump criticizing journalists. They were like he's promoting genocide against the journalist class. And people will see this would be found in New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. These were serious opinions. Now that he's being arrested, you know, these people are just like, oh, well, you know, eh, it happens. <laughs> in america and you're just like this is way more unprecedented this is way crazier than anything that happened in, in trump's presidency besides january 6 uh even though january 6 was kind of a silly affair it was uh, it was uh, it was more uh serious than charlottesville or you know trump tweeting about journalists um but even then you know you know compared to like now like him getting uh arrested and indicted is like really huge milestone in american history and it's just like oh well you know on both sides it's like you know people just like shrug and it's like huh? oh <laughs> which i think if it had happened in 2018 you know like obviously would have been an you know indicted when he was president but you know if something of that sort like say he got arrested and indicted hillary clinton You'd have like full on riots and stuff. You would have like, you know, a real constitutional crisis in America if that something like that happened. I mean, even just like him firing James Comey was like, you know, liberals hated James Comey, but that was seen as like the first step towards fascism is him firing the FBI director, which is like he has the power to do so. And liberals didn't even like him. And liberals. You know, now when we think of James Comey, like liberals, like, oh, he's a hero. And that was only done because Trump fired him. When he first fired him and like the first hours of it, like liberals like, oh, Trump actually did something good. And then they realize, like, hold on, we can manipulate this event to say that, like, he's crushing democracy and we can do that to push for a special prosecutor and do all these things that we want to do. And of course, they got a special prosecutor and that helped uh, derail a lot of the Trump administration. And it was just something small like that. Well, you know, Biden, you know, Biden's DOJ indicting and arresting Trump is just like, you know, it is what it is. Like even him firing James Comey was considered a constitutional crisis when, you know, firing your FBI director or CI director is a normal part of the job. Now, there are good aspects and I maybe not so good of aspects about this. I think the one good aspect about this is that the level of cancel culture, I guess you would have said, in the late 2010s and even right after Biden, because I would say the hyper political age, you know, started in 2015, maybe. I think when Trump came down the escalator, there was a lot of things going on. You know, there was the maybe you could say Ferguson, which is all the way in 2014, you know, the beginning of Black Lives Matter. And then it escalated all over time with Trump uh, running for president. And it was fully cemented when Trump won the presidency. And then, you know, it diminished a little bit after he left, but it was still high for in 2021. And it was still going in 2022. But once lockdowns ended and the midterms were over, 
you know, I think people have moved away from the hyper-political age. So maybe a period of eight years. I would say maybe 2014, 2015. We'll say 2015 to 2022. You know, that era of it. I would say is that there, especially during the height of the Trump presidency, it was a much bigger deal to get canceled. I think that there was much more worries over, you know, associations and comments and people just saying you have to drive this person out of public. You know, Me Too was becoming huge at that time and any Me Too accusation would be just a career death sentence. I compare this to what's happening to Russell Brand now. I mean, Russell Brand... You know, they're trying to cancel him, but he has so many people rallying to his support. I mean, the entire American, well, I was going to say the British right, but the conservative parties are, uh, the conservative party is leading the charge against Brand. But the American right is, you know, rallying around him. He's got tons of supporters. Uh, you know, if you go to YouTube comments about or, you know, any type of online space comments about the Brand stuff, like the majority of people are in support of Brand and they think that this is a political witch hunt. And that's very different from what happened with Me Too. It's like all it took was one accusation to just end your career, whether it was in media, whether you're on the low ranking file of being a just a random journalist, or if you were like a Hollywood star, like Jeremy Piffin's career was over, over a alleged Me Too incident that would appear to be consensual sex. But just the fact that the woman said like, I did, I felt violated afterwards. It's like Jeremy Piven's career in Hollywood. Like he had a TV show going on that was immediately canceled over that accusation. So now, but now uh, today it's like people are more willing to rally around Me Too accusations at the same time. Well, I'll go into one of the not bad moments with this and that's more with the justice system i'll get to that in a moment we've got a lot of things to get to in a moment but when it comes to just the media attention and your level of support that you can get as long as you can appeal to the right or certain segments of it you can still be uncancelable i mean richard hanania is probably the best example of this you know he had this really Bad docs that came out, they found all these really offensive things he said, or supposedly offensive things that he said, that would have been, you know, in my, you know, it's very similar to what happened with my docs. And there was a few institutions that disassociated with him, but none of the major things that he had to care about, which was primarily his book, which just came out last week. It's getting a lot of reviews, was not pulled, was not canceled, and was published by a major publisher. Uh, we will be reviewing that book later this week, hopefully. Uh, last week I was supposed to do it, but I didn't have enough time to get to it. But we will have a review later this week for an IQ supplement. And the book came out. And Substack didn't cancel him. Twitter didn't cancel him. You know, he was able to maintain his platforms and he was able to have his book out there. You know, a huge success, which, you know, if this had happened in 2019, he'd been on person. You know, he would have maybe, you know, Substack wasn't really around, but if he was on Patreon, you know, they would have kicked him off easily. They would have kicked him off as soon as the article was published. And his book would have been immediately canceled, unpersoned, no one coming out to defend him. Um, and that's what have been the case. But here, you know, there was very minor effects for him. So very different scenario than what it would have happened in the Trump era. And I think there was just this more intensity about the censorship and stuff and what they wanted to happen. And Hanani attributes this to Elon Musk buying Twitter, which I think that it has sent a signal to other corporations and big tech that they don't have to follow the democratic line on censorship. And a lot of these big tech, 
you know, platforms, you know, even Zuckerberg are tired of having to follow the Democrats line because they follow the Democrat line in the hope that they would protect, like leave their business alone. And instead they follow the Democratic line and Democrats are trying to interfere with their business. So they don't feel as beholden to do the same level of censorship that they did in the 2020 election as they will for the 2024 election, which will be good for Trump and the Republicans. No, they're still the left is still able to pressure advertisers to stop hosting on certain websites. Uh, recently, Burger King was stopped doing advertisements on Rumble over Russell Brand for some reason. I think that may have been the British government involved. Uh, but even, you know, in, during the Trump era, you had Sleeping Giants, which was this group that would try to pressure all these advertisers for Fox and Breitbart to drop them. And they did drop, like all these advertisers did drop Breitbart and Fox over Sleeping Giants campaign. Sleeping Giants has even tried to get me uh, push just because I made fun of the guy running it and the guy tried to uh, get uh, me deplatformed. But even I think that like the threat of deplatforming is depending on whether it had already happened to you. If it hasn't happened to you now, I think there's less likelihood of that happening than it was pre-2022 uh, compared to today. I mean, just like YouTube and others are now allowing COVID um, skepticism, uh, much more so than they would have in, a few years ago. Uh, they're allowing people to question the 2020 election. And they specifically stated that you could not do that after the 2020 election. And it was very bizarre that this happened. But I think that there's a leveling off of there and that the threat of deplatforming and full-on cancellation. And there's just all, even a lot of stories of just like random people are were doxxed for some type of views that they had or some affiliation with some group and you see that they didn't even lose their job and they're staking with their job which was never the case back in the trump era so i don't know maybe there's some good things in that and that the liberals themselves are not as hyperactive and histrionic or as able to organize it that they're focusing on something else besides politics which is good it's just one of those unintended side effects of Trump being on office. Now, is this all like, oh, we shouldn't support Trump because things are so tough? It's like, no, because really at the same time that, you know, it's seeming <clears throat> that it's easier for to talk and discuss these topics online. It's also that the left is able to do uh, implement their policies at will, you know, with what, however they want. I mean, it, look at the open border situation and they're able to continue this because they have. They have state power, as they want to say, as they have control over the uh, mechanisms that would be used to stop the illegal immigration, and they're just letting it keep on flowing, and they're, they have that power to do so. And also, I think state persecution, of, or just persecution in general, from state authorities is much greater risk now than before. Trump indictment, the most obvious example, but... It goes even to the level of what's happening to these electors, both in Michigan, alternate electors in Michigan and Georgia, that essentially these people are getting prosecuted for challenging the 2020 election and they face several years in jail over that. It goes to these random people who carried a tiki torch in Charlottesville who are now facing charges six years later and they could face up to five years in jail for just carrying a tiki torch. And they're much more willing, and even what's going on in Florida under Ron DeSantis, you know, under his uh, 
tough state power. He's using state power to go after people who drop uh, offensive pamphlets on people's lawns. You know, that's a that's a level of willingness to use the state power against dissidents. I think there's a much greater extent of that, and also due to the level of political power they have, in some ways, the apathy among the people, they're able to get away with a lot more than they would have in years before. And even some stuff, even with I saying, you know, Russell Brand, the backlash against his Me Too accusations, that didn't save Danny Masterson, who got 30 years in jail for uh, having sex of dubious uh, consent, which, and as I said in a po- earlier podcast, you know, an actual rapist, a guy who like grabbed a woman, like what knife to her throat and dragged her into a back alley, probably wouldn't even face 10 years. But Danny Masterson, due to being a famous person, a white guy and having the uh, being associated with Scientology, don't want to defend Scientology, but just seen as like we need to make an example of him. He got 30 years in jail. So the justice system is not so good for it. But I think uh, when it comes to social media and when it comes to holding a job, Maybe it's better now than it was under Trump, but (laughs) there's a greater likelihood of you getting persecuted for having these views than before. But the level of public uh, shame or uh, opposition towards you is much less. But it's the people who are at risk of being prosecuted are is a very narrow field. I don't think that it's as great as I don't want to get people too blackpilled. I don't think it's like every person who goes to a Trump rally is going to get prosecuted or something, uh, even though maybe that was the case of January 6th. Uh, but that's a very unique scenario. That's another uh, one. Um, but it's also, I don't think, uh, not everyone's affiliated with these like groups like Patriot Front and whatever that are now like getting arrested for doing protests and, in a way that the cops don't like. Uh, So it's not that everyone has to worry about that. I think that there's a wider net of people have to worry about what they say online and being able to say that and being able to get that message out there. That is something that applies to more people than the fear of getting arrested by the state. But it's something you do have to worry about that. It's even the the subject of a, of a new and upcoming Dinesh D'Souza documentary, which, you know, all our thoughts of Dinesh D'Souza aside, I am interested to see uh, the documentary and what stories it highlights because they are much more willing to use state power against conservatives and dissidents than they were even in the 2010s. I mean, hardly any, not very many people got arrested at, at Charlottesville. But if Charlottesville happened today, uh, there'd be a lot more people getting arrested and charged. Uh, as you can see what, with what happened with January 6th. But at the same time, fewer people would be getting deplatformed over Charlottesville, which that was a huge thing after Charlottesville. That's when they really increased this social media censorship was after Charlottesville. I mean, they were banning people from even having a website. Uh, so that happened after Charlottesville, which I don't think you would have a repeat there. So it's a weird dynamic that's happening there. But going on to another subject, that's uh, there's two other subjects I have to relate to this, and that's the nature of political radicalism and its prospects. Now, keeping in mind that a majority of the people are not as politically active as they were before, you know, they're focusing on football, they're focusing on sports betting, they're focused on TikTok, uh, they're just focused on their lives in general. That's something to keep in mind when you see a lot of this rhetoric coming from our side on Twitter. And I'm always going to keep calling it Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. Uh, maybe over time we will. I mean, 
if it's still X in like two years, I'm going to have to call it X, but we're still going to be old fashioned call it Twitter for the time being. So you see people who are always talking about like this idea that conservatives or right wingers need to become a revolutionary mindset. They need to see as the system is entirely against them and that they need to change that system or overthrow it in order to accomplish their goals and, and, and attitudes. And I think that this is one of the reasons that, you know, the depoliticizing age or the less political age or uh, the decline in hyperpolitization really dem- makes those prospects not as um, likely as before. And there were already not very good prospects of turning conservatives into revolutionaries before, but it's especially so with a lack of hyperpolitization. And a lot of these guys are like, we need to, you know, we see these terrible things happening with Trump. We see what they're doing with the J6ers. We see what they're doing with open borders. We need to rise up. And there's, of course, great, you know, steadfast, staunch patriots rising up and protesting the migrants uh, in New York City and, and the surrounding areas. And so that's like a good thing. But is that a level to the way of, you know, what people on Twitter thinking that we're going to have revolutionary upheaval and that, we're about to be the Bolsheviks again. And it's like, not at all. There's two things to keep in mind. It's like, one, yeah, it's true. It's like most of the people that you would need on your side are like young, vigorous, young, uh, you know, young men who are very vigorous and have a lot of energy. A lot of those guys are directing their energy and focus towards uh, sports betting and football or video games. Uh, not, very politi- uh, not very politicized. And even if you look at these protests in New York City, Primarily middle-aged people. It's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that if you're wanting a revolutionary moment, it's it's very hard to do that with 40 and 50-year-old people. Um, you know, the Bolsheviks were not a middle-aged movement. <laughs> it was relying on these young soldiers and stuff. You really need those young people there to do that. So that's just one thing to keep in mind, is that that's a part of the um, decline in hyper-politization, is that a lot of these young men are not the ones involved in this stuff. And the people who are really taking to the streets and most activated are Gen Xers, 40s and 50 years old, which is uh, not really, uh, if you're hoping for a revolutionary movement or, or a guerrilla movement, as all these people on Twitter uh, desire, it's probably not a good sign for your uh, fantasies. So a lot of people are disengaging, and it's generally not a moment when there's a high level of disengagement that people are going to then turn into uh, revolutionaries. And I think it's like all these theories that, you know, the right is about to rise up and do something and they have to really worry about this was uh, totally undermined by the reaction to tr- the Trump indictments is that we barely had any protests. And the Compact Magazine wrote this. And I, I don't think this is a fault of people trying to organize. You know, I know Gavin Wax and uh, Laura Loomer try to organize protests. And there's people there and that's fine. It's peaceful protests. But the type of large scale mass protests are what a lot of liberals feared is that we're going to have J6s all over the country, which fortunately we didn't because I, I don't know. The backlash towards J6 was uh, not very good for the right. And they were very much worried about that. But seeing that there was no none of that, that, that empowered the liberals and the state to just go full on into these persecutions of Trump and his supporters. And as they don't, they fear that they feel like they don't have to fear them. And I think if you were having, you know, conservatives who were having this revolutionary moment, you would at least see mass protests on the level of Women's March, which the Women's March after Trump was elected, you know, there was massive protests all over the country. You know, there was 
I think millions of people just took to the streets to protest Trump's inauguration, both in Washington, D.C. and all over the place. And you would have thought you would see, maybe not to that extent, but a lot of large demonstrations and maybe red state cities. And you really saw just a few dozen people and outside courthouses in New York or D.C. or uh, and Georgia. And that was it. So you, they're not even there for that moment. They're even if if something like this had happened, and and that time if somebody like a Trump ally or somebody was arrested, and Trump called for his supporters to protest, you know, you would have seen a bigger demonstration. You didn't see it then. So uh, conservatives turning into revolutionaries is not looking like that on the ground level. But even on just like a bigger level, is I think that, and I'm going to write about this in our article, is that. Uh, I think a lot of our side misunderstands what uh, how the right wing works or what right wingers are. Is that a big thing you need to realize is that most right wingers are people with something to lose. They are not like the proletariat of the early 20th century, where you know, and Karl Marx was advocating, and that you know, it might be Engels than Marx, but both Marx and Engels would say. Uh, you know, to the working man of the world, you have nothing to lose but your chains. But to uh, our message is like to the white American of the 21st century, you have nothing to lose but your 401k, your family, your home, your job, your hobbies, everything that you know and love and care about. And you have to do this on behalf of um, uh, something that we'll articulate later on. <laughs> That's really the type of a revolutionary argument is that one, we can't even agree what what type of revolution we're advocating for or what we're for, you know, it's generally hostility towards the left is the only unifying motive for us. It's not like promising, you know, a worker's paradise or something of that sort. And generally the weirder uh, idealistic stuff or the idealistic stuff comes off as weird to most of our people. If you know, if you're talking about like, whoa, we're going to have a Our Lady uh, Empire of Our Lady of Guadalupe, our uh, ethnostate, our uh, paleo-libertarian paradise. You know, most of our people were like, what? That's weird. I I don't want to be. I just hate the left and I hate libtards. And that's generally what motivates a lot of people. And so that's why you can't have quite the ideal. But that does, uh, the bigger problem is that they have, not that they lack that unifying ideal, is that they do have something to lose. And generally what motivates them is rising up to protect what they feel they have to lose. That is what's seeing in New York, York, where all these people are rising up to say that they feel that they're going to lose their neighborhood. They're going to lose their property value. They're going to lose, you know, the way of life that they've come to expect to by all these migrants moving in. It's about protecting what's theirs rather than trying to obtain something they don't have, which is a big difference between the left and the right, is the right wants to protect order, and uh, shore up order while the left wants to obtain something that they don't have the desire and they want to radically transform things and to obtain that and to achieve that goal. Now, people who desire order, they don't like disorder. They don't like chaos. So they're not going to be very eager to lose what they have and to create you know, instability and chaos when they really just want to make sure that order is better preserved. And so it's not very much of a type of mentality that leads to being revolutionary. And I've always said this with the left. The left actually has a lot of people who have literally nothing to lose. I know they have a lupin proletariat, a lupin bourgeoisie of like these community college dropouts who work at like a Starbucks and they literally have nothing going on in their lives or the drug addicts and all these types of people. 
And that's why they were able to build up, you know, Antifa so well is because they have a, a large supply of recruits to come and, and you know, rebel and, and commit violence and, you know, do these protests they were having in Atlanta against Cop City. They have an infants. They have a large supply of those people that they can recruit from. The right doesn't. You know, the right, if they're saying like, oh, this left wing group is about to build a center, we're going to try to topple it. And you go up to the right wing people like, uh, I got to pick up my kid from T-ball practice. My wife's not going to allow me to do that. Um, I'm worried about losing my job. You know, for the left, they don't have to worry about that. It's like, my job sucks. Like, I, I work like a minimum wage job. Uh, I, they're like addicted to drugs, so they have little to lose. And so they're much more able to be out there as street activists than the right is. And really what motivates the right to adopt a more radical position is the fear of the far left taking power. It's a real fear of a radical left wing movement that could be there. And that's what happened in interwar Europe. You know, you can go to the Spanish Civil War. That the reason why there's so many Spaniards backed Franco and the military uprising is because they were worried they're going to have a communist dictatorship. And even in America, when we backed all the you know immigration restriction and all these anti-communist measures during the uh, immediately after World War One, is that there was this fear of this far left that was committing terrorist acts and was trying to upend the American way. And so it's always that fear of a far left that drives radical right-wing politics. And it's very hard to create a radical right-wing politics when the threat is from the prevailing order, which is, you know, which you could say is the federal government or whatever, the pre present state of America. It's very hard to motivate those people on the right to do this because even if they have problems with it, they do feel that they gain a degree of benefit from this. You know, they can say like, well, you know, things are bad, but, you know, someone breaks into my home, I can still call the cops to, to do this, or I still feel like police are protecting my home from gangs. Maybe they don't feel this way in certain areas, but for, you know, people in the suburbs, they still feel that way. They still feel like uh, it allows me to try to obtain a home and to work that I can be able to work hard and still achieve a, a degree of the American dream. Even with them flying the flag of the United States, you know, we could say like, well, that's representing the nation rather than the government. And that's probably true. I don't think like people fly the flag or like I'm 100 percent loyal to the federal government and Joe Biden. But really, it's saying that you're loyal to the prevailing order, which is a which is transcends the current administration and the federal government. And generally, when it comes to revolutionary politics, it's not so much against like the current administration or the federal government it's against that order it's against the united states itself and it's easier for the left to make that jump because they burn the flag they see the flag as racist it's far harder for the right to make that jump because they're like well i'm still pro-america i still respect the troops i still respect police i still respect authority figures and that's a sign that they have a level of deference to the order and it's going to be very it would be very tough for them to give that up especially when they feel that the that they have a degree of material prosperity through the status quo that they otherwise wouldn't have and i think the left feels that they the status quo doesn't offer them or at least the hardcore left doesn't offer them as much as does the middle class whites do from the status quo and the order so that's something to say keep in mind is that when you're ever wanting 
right-wing radicalism. I think it's going to be still be there because of not so much of conditions dealing with the far left or things like that. It's more dealing with the loneliness epidemic and these uh, social problems we're having rather than a fear of a far left. But to have the type of radical right-wing politics we see of, you know, having a president who uses state power to crush his enemies and do this stuff, that can only emerge if there's a real fear of a far left revolutionary movement toppling the prevailing order and taking away what's people what people feel is theirs and taking away their property rights and taking away their everything they've built up. And right now people don't have that fear as much as they did in interwar Europe or uh, you know in Chile in 1973 and and when they were wanting to support radical right wing uh, options. Now there's still going to be a lot of interest in these ideas and politics because of the loneliness epidemic. And I've talked about this before, but you know I just repeat this because people are sharing these graphs of just showing all these young people who are not going on dates, they're not hanging out with people, they spend far more time alone. And, you know, we're already complaining about loneliness epidemic and how few people are getting married and forming families. And this problem is only going to get worse when Zoomers age into the into into their 30s and 40s over the next decade or actually in the next decade. And also as millennials get into middle age, a lot of them are going to be unmarried and childless. And so that's going to be a huge problem for America and there's not really any solutions for it, as I always say, is that people are like, well, it really is just people saying like, oh, young men, time to put down the video games and uh, wife appears. That's really it. And that's not everything that people have. But that due to that like atomization and loneliness is that people are going to gravitate towards radical politics, whether it's of the left or right. And there's going to be a huge problem with gender war stuff like you think the gender war stuff is bad now. Uh, just wait till both sides are unmarried and bitter over that experience. And you're going to see even more popularity of stuff is like whether it's anti-man or anti-woman. And that's going to be really um, animating a lot of the American discourse. So this radical politics is like we're never going to return to normal. Like the normality that people envision of the early 2010s of, or something of that sort. You're really going to have this deep-seated tensions and resentments and anxieties for a very long time due to the loneliness problem and with loneliness is that people are going to turn to politics as an answer to it and that's just going to be the way it is and i don't see a long-term solution to these problems at all uh besides uh castigating young men for playing video games <laughs> um that's really it so that's something to keep in mind so it's a interesting proposition is that I don't think that the type of radical right-wing politics at the federal government level or the state level or the type of risk that these right-wing leaders are willing to take will not happen unless there's a legitimate fear of a far-left movement that's threatening American order. As I argued in an article earlier this year, unless a Chavez movement emerges where you have a really radical, like a younger non-white Bernie Sanders who promises racial wealth redistribution and a total upending of the American order, and there that has a lot of political potency, if that's like a legitimate threat to this country, you will see all these arguments that people talk about using state power and and all the time on Twitter and about de-marginalizing your enemies, 
that will finally come to the fore once you have that threat. But without it, it's it's very hard to present those topics because otherwise people are just like, well, I'm happy with the status quo. Uh, maybe we'll own the libs a little bit, boycott boy, Bud Light, but I don't really want to go that far unless they really legitimately fear that what's theirs is going to be taken away. At the same time, there's going to be a lot of people into these ideas and politics due to the social problems of America, the increasing atomization and loneliness of the general population. And that builds into my last topic <clears throat> that I want to go into before I go and talk about all these kind of elite questions, which I have a lot and they're very good. But uh, for some reason, conservatives decided to uh, wage a blitzkrieg against the, <laughs> the red pill discussion and Pearl Davis last week and people discussing body counts. Uh, I don't know why, but like Matt Walsh had a long effort post that was a giant subtweet of Pearl Davis, but I think it was like just attacking any young men, which he always like has these subtweets that are directed at people, but he doesn't name who he's directed at. And so he builds like this straw man of like who he's attacking. And so he's like, uh, all the anti-marriage discourse is terrible. Everyone gets needs to get married. Anyone who criticizes marriage is just a loser who can't get married, and we should uh, shun them from society. That's essentially what it is. And then Pearl Davis got in and was pointing out all the like uh, facts about divorce and marriage and how you know eighty percent of women initiate div uh, divorce, and you know men end up with you know, losing child custody, losing a lot of their wealth in it. And it's like a devastating experience for men. And maybe that's why they're not choosing marriage. Legitimate discussion. And then everyone was then attacking Pearl Davis uh, because conservatives really want to promote marriage. For I mean, obviously marriage and family are good, but I think that they're um, a little bit uh, rosier on their uh, prospects for it than, than I think that is in reality. So then you had that, and then uh, I don't know who was talking about body counts, but maybe it was Pearl Davis too, but then conservatives were attacking body counts, uh, which this uh, aging uh, aging uh, thought, um, Bridget Phetasy, who is well into her 40s, and for some reason she became a big thing among conservatives, despite her only thing being like, I'm a woman who's had a lot of sex before, and I was a whore back in my last life, but now... Uh, I'm not really reformed, but now I'm uh, a conservative. And her whole like shtick has been standing up for women's like sexual, <laughs> female sexual promiscuity and trying to present herself as a young, hot, desirable woman, which she is not. She is uh, not attractive and she is in her 40s. And she's talking about how Republicans are going to lose all these elections if random influencers keep talking about body count on uh, Twitter, which... It's just ridiculous. But it's a stupid notion, but they always want to censor discussion that is uncomfortable for them. That's very true for women. If they don't like a discussion topic, they have to make some wild, irrational claim about how this is going to offend people. Like, you're going to scare away us. Like, you can't talk about this. While, like, the autistic men are like, no, we're going to talk about the truth no matter the consequences. So that's what happened. But and the combination of the discourse really upholds this conservative... Uh, simp complex where they you know they don't want to admit that there's anything wrong with women that no one should talk about body count if they have a high body count it's the male men's fault anyway easily said that's how we solve this it's the same with like abortion if a woman gets an abortion it's somehow the man's fault she's totally blameless and marriage 
all comes down to telling young men to put down the video games and then they'll instantly get married and if they have a positive attitude. Which I just think, you know, maybe there's some motivation for men that they could go out and be show more initiative to the to have family formation. But I, I don't think that it's so much men choosing not to be married. I think it's that a lot of Amer- men have very tough prospects to get married in the first place, or at least a lot of these guys coming into radical right-wing politics do. Because a lot of these guys, you know, maybe it's, it's you know, as we have increasing social atomization, that people have fewer friends, fewer social circles, you know, everything's done online, and maybe they've had bad experiences in the past, and so they've decided to focus more on video games than focus on meeting people. And it's, like, very hard for this. And so, you know, the conservative mind um, advice for increasing family formation is just to really browbeat these, you know, maybe we'll call the incel demographic, the incel demographic that they need to give up all their hobbies and go and marry a fat single mom which the fat single mom would probably not even accept their overture, but let's let's say if they did, and that's how we can restore family formation. And it's just like a very unappealing prospect for it. I don't think amount, the amount of propaganda on each side is like, oh, if we have more pro-family formation stuff, that this would encourage young men to get married. I think it's more that uh, a lot of this stuff is, in, is directed to women, is that most of the mainstream media's propaganda and mainstream society's telling what they're telling women is that you have this incredible life you have this sex and city ideal without kids and without a husband and you could travel all over the world and you could have unlimited brunch with your friends and what would get in the way of that is having a family and it also stifle your career that could you'd earn meeting and derive an identity from and that's like a much tougher obstacle i think for family formation than like a lot of young men dropping out because most of the young men dropping out are are already having problems i think a lot of them generally would want uh, a wife and kids but they're um you know they're having trouble obtaining that maybe they have uh, you know social skills problems or some other problem and they can't obtain that which i don't think like bullying these guys and browbeating them isn't really the <laughs> solution it's more about tell it's trying to reach young women to tell them like how they need to ha- strive for marriage and family which is not the message being directed towards them by our media and society it's the complete opposite but then conservatives see the, the decline in family formation and they decide to blame red pill people who Generally, most of these people are giving them legitimate dating advice to young men. And some of it's like stupid, but a lot of it's better than conservative dating advice, which is just simply drop a video games and then a wife suddenly appears. That's not going to happen. You know, at least the red pill people are offering this stuff to um, young men. But I think it's just like a a major issue that's going to see forward. And like the final thought on this is that the incel demographic is going to continually increase. We're also going to have a femcel demographic, but very different politics with that. And that's a very different matter. Um, you know, that's the demographic complaining about good men scarcity and everything of that. That's another separate discussion topic. But the incel demographic is going to continue to grow larger and larger in public. And it's going to have a political presence because these guys have a lot of free time on their hands. And they're clearly not happy with their situation. As that's why they're on incel forums. But they really are the most hated demographic. Is that nobody wants to be attached to them. And even though that incels are 
more likely to be left wing. And I think a lot of these guys who are listening to Trapo Trap House and following Vouch and Hassan are, would count as incels. But the whole left really is repulsed by that. And they have to insist like, no, I had sex with a beautiful woman uh, several months ago. She goes to a different school, though. Don't ask about her. You know, they'll be insisting that they've had sex before, which all these leftists, no matter how fat and ugly they are, they always want to mention that they've had sex before when they are interacting with the right. But the left really doesn't want to be the incel side. So they hate these people and they view them as evil, even though a lot of the incels are the ones watching their shows and contributing to their platform and making up a sizable part of their demographic. They still hate incels because uh, the women involved in this absolutely hate incels more than anything on earth. And then the right, you know, I think the right is more open that they attract incels, but then individually they want to say like, oh, no, or, uh, you know, whether it's mainstream cons presenting like I have a happy family life, I have a totally hot submissive wife and six kids and I'm living out the dream. A lot of these people at least are maybe not living out the dream, but that's what they want to claim. And then going to... You know, people on the right who want to present themselves as playboys and the reason why they're not getting married is that they are just having too many options. You know, they really don't want to represent incels either. Some some groups do, but a lot of them don't. And it's so funny that this is a larger demographic that is starting to animate both the the far left and far right. And both sides do not want to be associated with incels because they're the most hated low status group in America. And women especially hate them. As I always want to say is like whenever they talk about the loneliness epidemic and solving it is that the fact is that the ones who are most harmed by it are these male incels. And any type of it's more likely that the political solution for that is putting them all in a prison camp than actually trying to help them with their lives is that people... If you present the loneliness epidemic as that it's creating incels, then people would turn into anger and and want to punish these people who are lonely rather than wanting to help them out. Because it's just driven by women. Women like absolutely hate low status men and they want to see them eliminated from public. You know, it's almost a genocidal mindset that they have with this, but it just is what it is. It's biological impulse, I guess. But it's even seen this with the... when you see the media give attention to this, it's like uh, loneliness problems and all those like mental health issues are probably are really bad, maybe even worse among young men than they are among young women. But all the attention is just paid to young women. It's like, oh, social media is making them feel uh, self, uh, self-conscious self about their weight. And even though body dysmorphia, and even though that may be the case, it's like more young women are fat. So apparently it's not having a, as much of an effect on their, on their mindset if they're still continuing to eat a bunch of chocolate chip cookies. But uh, all the attention on like so, uh, on isolation and not getting married and uh, mental health problems on social media and loneliness. It's all about young women. Young men could just like go fuck off and be put in a prison camp. There's no concern at them for all. And any time that there is brought up, it's something that's a personal problem that can just be solved by, as I keep repeating, putting down the video games. But with women, we it's a, it's a huge alarm and society needs to come together to stop this, whether it's banning TikTok because it's creating negative impressions on young women or you know finding like mandatory husbands for these for these girls so that they marry and they can we can uh, correct good men's scarcity so it's just something interesting there is that you're going to see this is that there's going to be 
all these problems with the young man and being isolated and not having um, any relationships with the opposite sex and having trouble with family formation and being probably much lonelier and no one caring about them compared to young women, but all the attention is just going to be paid towards young women and their mental health struggles and what social media is doing to them rather than what's happening to young men, uh, even though both problems are going to be increasing. So that's, uh, I guess, a very much a white pill about American society. But in conclusion, that's like radical politics are here to stay, but radical right-wing politics achieving the level of power or, or success that a lot of people imagine can only occur if there's a legitimate threat of far left politics. And while America is, you know, hyper politicization is over for the time being, it can easily return. You know, there's a lot of troubles ahead. Uh, and it could easily return next year if Trump wins. So, but I just think for the time being, for 2023 and what we're going to see outside of a Trump getting elected, you're going to, people are calming down and focusing on other things rather than politics. And I think that should make people more realistic about what can happen in the future and where the American people are at, rather than imagining that they're all eager for national divorce and revolution. So that's it. And now on to the kind of elite questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the kind of elite option at highlyrespected.substack.com. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we have a lot of questions. We have two questions from Jay. One question I did not get, or one set of questions I did not get to last week because he sent them, or I saw them after I recorded. So I will go to those first. So the first question from Jay asks, he's talked about how he hasn't watched the NFL or sports for about eight years and he will continue. I used to watch, he said, I used to watch sports in the late 90s and 2000s. Every once in a while I see ESPN on a TV somewhere and it's a little bit shocking to me. Feels like those channels are dominated by women. You talk about the magification of sports. Is the regime having any success watching the feminization of sports? Yes, they, they are actually because they always forcing these female commentators they're really trying to force coaches and female players on uh, one of the teams has like a kicker now who's or maybe it's college football that has like a special teams player that's like a female they really want to push this stuff and they're even trying to have transgender uh cheerleaders i don't know if that's a part of the feminization but they really are trying to make these sports feminine and it's about, about expanding their market size, is that they want to win over women to watching sports. And I think that is the case. It's like I've met a ton of young women who are really into sports. They get really into it, much more than men. And they're and it's like they display a lot of male behaviors by uh, being that there's like a lot of coarseness to them. They'll be drinking a lot. But it's like a, a large part of like trying to promote masculine behavior among women. And part of that is getting into female sports. And I guess that they see color commentators on the sidelines that are women and they're talking about it or they're having discussions or whatnot on the ESPN panels that they are now getting more into sports. So, yeah, and I think one of the other examples of feminization of sports is that they always used to make, I still think they do this, is that for an entire month, I think it's in October, they make these guys wear pink uh, to show for breast cancer awareness. But it really, in large part, it's about winning over women and really trying to feminize these very masculine brutes on the field and show that like they have a softer side because they're all wearing pink uh, stuff to signal breast cancer awareness, which is just weird because... 
like most of their audience isn't um, capable of getting breast cancer awareness. They should do something for like prostate cancer awareness or colon cancer awareness, which would be uh, much more applicable to their audience. But they do breast cancer awareness as a sign of feminization. So it is having success and it is winning over a lot of the female audience. But it is very grating to have this. Uh, you know, this analysis provided by women and all of them are huge libtards who get mad at any criticism of them. And they're all idiots when you watch them on ESPN. So they are having some success. And now we'll get on to a second question they sent um, last week or more recently is like, seems they like the Greer Head challenge is changing every week these days. That's okay. I'll keep following that thing. A few years ago, I would joke with friends that it would be rebellious to not have a tattoo and look like shit. The tattoos are out of control. Most of them don't even look good. I want to ask you about a related topic, I think. Another thing that has changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years is the way people talk, specifically the use of over-positive language. For example, everything is amazing of said of not bad. That's, there's a lot of other examples. Do you have any thoughts on the change in language and inflection of language over the last 15 years or so? I think that's Reddit. That's definitely a, a sign of Reddit is that Reddit always wants the hyperbolic. It's like, this is epic, amazeballs. And that is a sign of reddification of American society, which is what the Greerhead Pledge wants you to avoid through... Not watching Marvel movies. No, that's a that's that it definitely has changed with how people talk and uh, over positive language. That is definitely true, and it is a part of ratification. That's not so much magification. I don't think uh, the magical Americans talk much about like how things are epic or maze balls, but that is Reddit, Star Wars, Marvel movies having more influence over American society. So that is the result of that. So yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and so now on to the next question from Mystery. Hey Scott, what conspiracies do you believe in political or non-political? Uh, I believe in the conspiracy theory that Lee Harvey Oswald uh, killed JFK. <laughs> I believe in the conspiracy theory that we landed on the moon. I'd have to think about that one. I don't no, some of the conspiracy theories um, that I would have to believe, um, you know, I do believe that there was some deep state involvement in the removal of uh, Nixon, but I don't think it was initiated by them. I think it was more that they wanted to remove Nixon to deflect attention from themselves. Uh, so I believe that. Uh, I believe in the conspiracy theory that the deep state had a role in diminishing Trump's presidency. Um I would believe in the conspiracy theory that um, there were, you know, outside forces influencing the 2020 election. Uh, so that's all, some of the things I would have um, more gen uh, general on that stuff. And I, I guess I believe in the conspiracy theory, the great replacement. So those would be the ones I would have to think about. Uh, if I'm sure if I thought, you know, cram my brain some more, I'm sure I would come up with some um, conspiracies that I would believe in that are political or non-political, but I would have to, I would have to think about that some more. So that's a good question to ask continuing into the future is that, you know, there's so many questions today that I can't give total, um, uh, focus on, but that's something that I, I will come back to, you know, there's definitely some that, um, I would definitely believe, but 
So that's a very good question. Very simple question from Mystery. Hopefully that answers the question. I don't think that's going to make anyone happy because they definitely want me to believe in a far a lot more conspiracies. I think believing in the moon landing happened maybe uh, Dunzo for uh, Mr. Greer over here. And now the next question comes from John. We still have a final question from our favorite uh, question asker, which we'll save for last. And this question comes from John. So he says, Scott, I don't know when you record these, so maybe I'm too late, but I have two questions. Don't worry, you're just in time. I haven't heard you talk about Deion Sanders on the pod. What are your thoughts on the media craze over him? Fortunately, Oregon destroyed his team on Saturday. That's true. Um, Deion Sanders, I actually do have interesting thoughts on Deion Sanders. He is obviously going to get a lot of attention because he's very entertaining. He's very fun. He's a very funny individual and he's really promoting himself. And obviously black Americans are getting really into college football now. Thanks to Deion Sanders and his team, which even though a lot of these teams are very black, they have a very white, they have an extremely white conservative coach. There's a very white attitude towards the program and the players and the Aesthetics they want to get off, while well, Colorado, which is an insanely white school, only 3% of its student population is black, and the town is only 1% black, yet it's now the blackest team. It's like extremely black um, culture that they want to give off. And black Americans are getting into it, and so it's their first uh, college football team that they've really uh, taken into, and he's become a symbol of black culture. But there's something different from you know, other examples of this, because this is not the first time college sports have had a black team that's challenging the white structure, even though most of the, you know, college basketball and college football have always been predominantly black. You know, there's still been a very white culture around the sports fandom, uh, the type of attitudes and, and style that these teams want to go off is very trying to be appealing to whites. And also the coaches themselves have always been these like staunch white conservatives. And, but there's a difference here because, you know, there's not something threatening about Colorado or Coach Prime is that they are really a goofy ex expression of black culture is that they're just too goofy to be threatened by or worry about. That's something very different from the Miami Hurricanes in the 1980s or the Fab Five of Michigan, as these guys were really into gangster rap. They came from the hood. They're very much being like, "You, hey, white people, you should be terrified of us because we're coming for you. And it was something that was definitely a threat level about these uh, teams. And also they had a lot of criminals on their team. Um, there was a famous game between Notre Dame and Miami in 1988, I believe it was the convicts versus catholics because there are so many uh, criminals on the miami team now there's a lot of criminals on these teams but they keep them hush hush but uh you know they didn't do as good of a job in the 80s on this so there was a very much of a threatening level of this and they were like listening to rap and these look like guys who would be carjacking you or robbing you on the street while with the Colorado team, they're just too goofy because like they do them interviews, they're doing these like goofy dances. Like even Deion Sanders himself is just like uh, is really funny. He's just like a you know he's like a he's a comedian. He's more of a comedian than a gangbanger. And you do have that. Event. And even if you watch that KFC commercial that the Sanders family did, it's just like too goofy. To, it's just like a minstrel show. So it's like it doesn't have that threatening level about it. It's really rather than, you know, gangster rap. It's a Tyler Perry movie uh, or, or Soul Plane rather than something like that, rather than like N.W.A., 
So that's a so that's a that's an interesting part about the Deion Sanders phenomenon. But ultimately, you have to root against them because they are about making the sport more diverse and blacker. Which the great thing about college football, even well, demographics wise, it's already extremely black. I mean, I was watching. Uh, I was actually watching an Oregon, I think it was Oregon-Boise State, or no, it was Washington State-Boise State, I think, as the first week or, um, over Labor Day, and the even Boise State is very, very black, even their quarterback is black, and they were always used to be a very white team, so demographics-wise, but the culture around it and the aesthetics have always still been very white, and all the coaches are very white conservative. I mean, look at Tommy Tuberville. I think most coaches, if they ran for Congress, they'd be like Tommy Tuberville. So we got to get more college football coaches running for office. I'm dead serious about that. That's another conversation topic. Um, But yeah, they want to really change that culture around college football, and it's literally one of the few... Minus the player demographics, it's one of the few very white things in our country. Because if you look at the stands, it's all nice white people. And Colorado wants to change that. So you really have to root against them and hope they uh, don't uh, make it to the... It doesn't. They got their ass beat by Oregon. So it doesn't look like... They, hopefully they don't make it to the college football playoff. So you do have to root against them for that alone. Because if they become a dominant team, you're going to see more coaches like Deion Sanders... And then the fans and the culture are going to respond to that. And rather than wearing polos, they're going to be wearing uh, graphic tees and, uh, and and jewelry and and talking about how they love Prime and using uh, urban lingo. So you don't really want that among the fans and the culture. Now he has a second question that's a good question. He asks... What are your thoughts on the UFC and do you watch it? It is my favorite sport to watch and as a very right-wing owner who is a longtime friend of Trump. If you hate all the political messaging and all their sports, it might be worth getting into. Um, I would say this about UFC. Personally, I don't like watching it and I I don't really like watching the sport. Um, you know, I, I liked boxing as a kid. I always liked it and my grandfather was a boxer. And so I really, I, I liked, you know, watching some of the boxing matches. The main problem with boxing is that it was always like blacks and Hispanics. So there wasn't really any guys to root for, except for the Klitschko brothers, which um, now the guy, one of them is the mayor of Kiev, as we always have to note. Uh, but it was always like Eastern European. So there wasn't really anyone for you to root for. But I, I liked boxing more. But UFC is just a little too... Um, I don't know. I, say, saying it's too brutal makes it sound like I'm weak or a cuck or something. But it's like a, it's not a sport I generally entertained by, and some of the aesthetics around it I'm not the biggest fan of. But I, I have to admit, like if you like watching it, it is truly the most right wing sport. And the fact that any time Trump goes to a UFC match is that the entire crowd treats him like a god. And all these fighters are really right wing. These guys will go up and their final message is like, Trump 2024, even if they, you know, maybe have some trouble with English. You know, they're all like, a lot of these fighters are very right wing. But the sport itself, uh, I'm not that big of a fan of watching. But if you're into it, I would never say like, don't watch UFC. You know, to each their own. If you really enjoy it and you really like having a sport without any woke messaging, then UFC is there. But personally, I find the traditional sports, traditional team sports, much more appealing to watch. Uh, you know, some the sports I really don't like watching is like golf, uh, which is um, really turning in my middle-class white credentials there, especially among my family. My family loved watching golf, but I was always like, this is boring to watch. I never even enjoyed playing it. I should get into it as I'm older, so... 
Uh, I, I would say I can get understand playing it, but watching it, I was like, man, this is uh, not something I want to watch. But tennis is interesting to watch. But the thing I really like watching is primarily the team sports, um, which is football and basketball, which would be my favorite. Um, I, I used to find be- baseball a little bit more boring, but I think the pitch clock has improved the game a little bit. And I was watching some of the... Um, my family are traditionally Orioles fans, and the Orioles are really good. So I've caught a few Orioles games at the bar, and I got like into it and like seeing like the new plays and stuff that was going on there. But UFC is just not one of the sports I like to watch. Um, you know, it, it, the really disgusting aspect about it is the uh, female fights, which I just find like repulsive. I really don't like. Uh, I truly am disgusted when I watch the female. Um, MMA fighters and that's like a huge draw in the fights too now is like the the female fighters and uh, that's something uh, I'd maybe rather watch like the latest uh, <laughs> like crappy uh, political uh, drama that they have on network uh, TV rather than uh, female uh, MMA but it's uh, UFC if you're fine with it it is very right wing it is you know, you don't have to worry about woke messaging there. So if you're for for it, you know, that's okay. Teach their own. You know, people have different tastes. So that's fine. But for me, myself, I don't find it a entertaining sport to watch. And now finally for the question you've all been waiting for. And it's, of course, from our good friend, New England Refugee, coming back for return from last week. Uh, where he's curiously missing. We were wondering what had happened to him. But I, he, we were sure that he's all fine and well and wanting to ask more questions and he said hey scott saw that our nation's most corrupt senator finally is getting charged with bribery he has always been fairly open about his corruption so why are they taking action now is that he just became too obvious with envelopes of cash or is the doj trying to seem a bit more fair when they prosecute while they prosecute trump and other right-wingers you know there's a little bit of both i think it's that he's just become more brazen in his corruption and i think also menendez is not on the team with the Democrats. He's like been very critical of the overtures to Iran. Like he is a big time uh, Israel booster, which, you know, and a lot of Democrats want more freedom of maneuver on a lot of these issues. And he is, you know, a very powerful senator when it comes to foreign relations. He's the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. So he is, and it's not just like this is a backbencher. This is like one of the most important, powerful lawmakers in America. And he's just like taking gold bars from Egypt. So I think it's like he just became obvious that he was really brazen with it. I don't think that Biden and a lot of these other Democrats really like Menendez, so they don't really want to defend him. And maybe I think the DOJ is eager to show that it will go out because it's like wanting to say that no one is above the law. And they're like, who can we make an example of? Menendez. And they're like, okay, we don't really like Menendez. Uh, he doesn't really follow the team. He has a little bit too much independence on some of these issues that we care about. So, yeah, we'll go after Menendez. And I think so. I think there's a bit of both uh, there. I think he was a convenient target. You know, if they were going to go after Schumer, they're not going to go after Schumer. I don't think he's as brazen as corruption as <laughs> like Menendez. But I think they want to set an example and say that the DOJ is impartial and a nonpartisan outfit, which is obviously not true. And they felt that Menendez was a good a good enough target. And I think they were just like tired of it. I think that they were generally were concerned that like other foreign nations could just like 
obviously bribed this guy and this he's head of the foreign relations committee and they're like okay you've got to go and so it's interesting to see that they did this um it's remarkable it took them this long to do this and it's also just like outrageous like it's all driven by his wife being like greedy and wanting more stuff and him just like being smitten with a younger woman i guess like slightly younger woman like i think she's like 20 years older than younger than him i think he's like in his 70s and she's like in her 50s but um yeah it's uh i'm a little bit surprised the doj did this but i think the doj does want to create this image of themselves that they're just not going after republicans that they're an equal opportunity persecutor or prosecutor and menendez made a convenient target for them and so this is why they went after him um but it's also at the same time when you're being as brazen as menendez like i don't even think democrats can look the other way with that um so it's an interesting case. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it. I wonder, you know, he's like, I mean, he is guilty. He's more guilty than Trump, even on the documents. Like, I always say that Trump isn't really guilty in the general cultural sense on the document stuff. But on the technical details, you know, you could see like, okay, maybe he is guilty. But it's clearly something we don't prosecute for other major officials. Just look at Hillary Clinton. But here... It's like there's never been a time where we didn't prosecute officials for taking gold bars from a foreign country to advocate for their interests, especially when they're a powerful senator. It's far worse than anything that Trump did. But obviously, they're going to say that what Menendez did is uh, far less bad than Trump. And he doesn't have many defenders. And I think it is he just makes a convenient target for Democrats and for a lot of them to say that, like, look, we're so much better than Republicans. We distance ourselves from Menendez and we fully support the DOJ investigation of him while the the Republicans rally behind that traitor Trump. So it's an interesting case. We'll keep an eye on it. And that is it for Highly Respected today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed, got informed, and didn't get too uh, black <laughs> about the situation that we're in. I always never try to do that. Just try to be real with you guys and open about what I believe. So we will continue to produce more great content. I hope, I don't want to fully promise, but I I, I think we'll have a review of Hanania's book later this week. And we're going to have another incredible, highly respected article for you guys. And hopefully you guys didn't get too upset about the, uh, the new Greer Head Pledge. I was going to talk a little bit about tattoos and the proletarianization of America. But I think actually UFC really does go along with that. That's probably a big reason I don't like it, is that it really does try represent this vulgar proletarianization of American culture and society with you know some of the athletes who are involved and stuff and the aesthetics around it. It is very much of a face tattoo America <laughs> comes out with UFC, even though it is very right-wing, and I acknowledge that it's very right-wing, and a lot of those people are hardcore Trump supporters, and I don't want to, you know, say, like, I don't want anything to do with these people, but it's just not my cup of tea. So, but we'll talk more about uh, the problems with tattoos later on in another podcast, maybe next week's podcast, depending on what, it, what there is to talk about. So, that is it for today, and until next time, stay respected.